This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living Catholic, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now your host, Bill Cathy. Welcome to another edition of Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Today we will begin our first segment with what we do each and every week, and that is faith and politics. Father, it looks like a big week in the uh, political presidential race. They're throwing mud now. I was going to say, the mud's getting pretty thick on both walls here. It seems that uh, we're in the doldrums of the summer season before the uh, respective uh, conventions. And so there isn't much to talk about except uh, the foibles of the candidates. I guess it depends on how you define that. I guess the the intent is to get to the heart of what it means for, to define the character of each one of the candidates. But we do that with the kind of negative advertising, trying to throw mud up against the wall and see what sticks. It's uh, – I guess it's as old as uh, as political campaigns go. It certainly was uh, the case in the time when that I'm most aware of when Jefferson and Adams ran against each other and Adams eventually lost to Jefferson. Jefferson, who poised himself to be the friend of the common man and uh, the friend of those who lived in the cities, while in fact he was an aristocrat who hated the cities, but he was able to portray John Adams as the uh, grasping and uh, – the corrupt um, politician that would uh, jeopardize everybody who lived in New York City. So he lost the New York City vote, didn't win, Jefferson won, and the rest is history. Good to know that the uh, the giants of political history in the United States had to endure all the things that had to endure what presidents and presidential candidates and uh, incumbents and those who run against them have to endure in our system these days. Well, Father, I thought it was interesting in history class learning about in the 1860 election that the mudslinging was so bad that they actually got to uh, Lincoln's opponents were calling him a baboon right. of just making fun of his physical appearance. Well, anything that works, getting elected is what it's all about. R- Lyndon Johnson used to say, if you want great oratory, go to the House of Commons. Uh, if you want to see great government at work, go to Prussia. But uh, if you want to uh, if you want to see what how to get things done, count votes. And that's what he did in the Senate. So, Well, I think a lot of this has to do with the dog days of summer, that there's not a lot going on. And so the rhetoric gets hotter and hotter because – I think if you want to learn about the University of Oklahoma, you probably shouldn't go to Stillwater and ask around there as much, and vice versa if you want to learn about Oklahoma State. Norman's probably not the place to learn about it. Right. So I would say probably we should be pretty skeptical about both negative ads. Well, again, this is these are the dog days of summer, and nobody wants to pay very much attention to this. For anybody who really wants to focus this campaign and really wants to explore what the future holds, this is the time to do it for several reasons. One is that all of this is kind of preliminary jousting, and both of the campaign committees on both sides are trying to figure out what's going to play in the general election. And they don't know, with all the polling that goes on and all of the studies that that are done and all the experts that are consulted, it's a mystery. They don't know what's going to connect with the average voter or what's going to get a lot of mileage or what the other candidate is going to say in response, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a time when everybody's kind of trying out what they're going to do. It's 
spring training if you're thinking of baseball or it's the summer workouts if you're thinking of football. The real game really gets in gear pretty much like football right after Labor Day. And uh, I – think that this is the time when we begin to sharpen our political acuity. So we really begin to identify very clearly what the issues are. And certainly for those of us in in the arena where we are these days, the concerns about religious freedom are real concerns. They go to the depth of what it means to be a Catholic and to be faithful in our society these days. The concerns about the the exercise of, of the political will in our country, what's going to be good for the common good, what's going to be good for for uh, all of us together, both with regard to the economy, but much larger than that, with regard to the exercise of, of our dignity as human as, as human beings. And then thirdly, what what where do we stand with regard to uh, our future prospering? And I think all of those questions are are clearly questions that touch on the, the choices of the candidates. And not just the choices of the candidates in the presidential election, but where do we stand with regard to, to our to the responsibility that we have with regard to local elections? Because with the curious way that we elect presidents, Oklahoma is pretty much sewed up with regard to the electoral votes for president. And so, as we I think mentioned on our last program, that uh, there isn't going to be a lot of the battles fought here. Nobody cares about uh, Oklahoma because we're not one of the contested states. And so, most of the of the immediate kind of of impact that we have about the the things that get said in the presidential presidential election aren't going to touch us here much at all. That makes our responsibility for the votes we cast, especially for those in national office. Uh, congressman and senator, as well as in the, the the local elections, that much more important because they touch on us immediately and directly. And so the question about human prospering, what does it take for a society to prosper, and what do we want, what's good for us, I think are very, very important questions. And so as all of the mud gets thrown around and all of the things get said, enjoy it if you like or 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 go to a basement and cover your ears. But uh, spend some time focusing on religious freedom. What does it mean for the common good? And what does it mean for our human prospering? I think one of the saddest things, unlike the calling of Lincoln a baboon or Jefferson and Adams throwing mud balls at each other, that just came from their mind. And it's kind of scary thinking about the poll testing, that they actually have people in rooms like it's an experiment. It's almost a brave new world. What do you think of that? That these issues and these commercials are tested. Oh, absolutely. Well, I can't imagine why you wouldn't do that. You're you're paying a lot of money to ask people. It's not that much different than going down to the corner and saying, what do you think about Mr. Obama? What do you think about Mr. Romney with regard to this issue? Now, it's, it's very sophisticated asking the question and getting people's answers. But to a large extent, again, there's huge amounts of money involved, and it's a gigantic process, almost a machine that gets engaged. But it comes down to people walking into the ballot box and pulling that lever for who they want. And the good part about what happens is that these issues are framed based upon how people respond. The good part about that is that the elections happen even in this overheated and gigantic country of ours where billions of dollars get spent on on elections it still comes down to the to you and me and to to the average person walking into the ballot box and making a decision and that's the great part about this 
what we need to do, in my opinion, as Catholics, is to keep the issues like religious freedom, because these, what we're talking about today, are pretty distractions about whether Romney left Bain, whatever, in 99. That, that's, that's pretty deep in the weeds, and that diverts us from the real issues of religious freedom. That if there's one giant complaint I have about politics in general, and that is on the state level, on the, on the county level, as much as on the national level, and that is that we do, that, that people are, are geniuses at getting us distracted about the principal issues. So we end up being concerned about, in the, in the case of uh, oh, in the early 90s, where the president got his hair cut. There's some giant thing that went on for three weeks. As uh, as this is all happening, then billions of dollars are being spent, initiatives are being uh, proffered, and and uh, all kinds of concerns are being addressed that have that that are really important that touch on on us and on on our lives and on the lives of millions of people. And it, the 24-hour news cycle is all talking about things that are completely, completely apart from what matters. And um, I just that becomes so ultimately destructive in what we end up doing that uh, it, it just makes me despair sometimes. Well, just one other thing in international politics that appears Syria is in complete turmoil now in Damascus. And you had mentioned this uh, several months ago, but we need to remember the Christians in Egypt and all through the Middle East. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's Christians in Egypt, in Syria, in uh, in the, the rest of the of the Middle East. Syria had always been regarded as the place in the Middle Eastern countries where Christians felt most secure, and now with the change of government in Egypt, Christians, the the the, the old Christian church or the Coptic Christians, which trace their their existence in Egypt back to the time of the apostles. They feel very, very threatened and uh, are leaving in very large numbers because they, they're afraid. And now with uh, Syria coming undone, that that haven has become very, very troubled for the people there. So I talked to a young man from Lebanon just the other day who is in the – his family have uh, – he has part of his family is in Syria, part in Lebanon. And the family from Syria is moving back up to Lebanon and they hope to be able to move either into Western Europe or into the United States. Interestingly, a large number of, pal- of uh, Christians in Syria are heading to Argentina, interestingly enough. So, again, all that displacement, these are communities that have been present there for 2,000 years. And in our lifetime, the, the presence of that community is threatened with extinction, which is just, just enormous. So this is, this is a very troubled time. Thank you, Father. And we'll be back in just a moment with our next segment. A pause with the apostles. Welcome back to segment two, A Pause with the Apostles. Father, tell us about the Apostles. Well, what we're going to do is uh, spend a little time with a little segment of the Apostles' Creed. Here we are. Last week we talked a little bit about what it means to say, I believe in God, the first line in the Apostles' Creed. The second line, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. 
uh, it's important to point out a couple of things here. One is that when this creed was put together, what they were intending to do was to give us a, a sort of basis upon which to build, it, a way, a kind of quick way to summarize what this giant uh, nexus of of energy and and culture and revelation meant, and how we could communicate all of that to those who were seeking to uh, to to get a hold of what it meant to believe in Christ. And so they begin at the beginning, what it means to believe, what it means to believe in God. And then finally, they, they hasten to add that, that uh, the belief in God was the belief in God the Father who is almighty. Now, I want to dispel any of these lingering concerns that believing in God the Father means that we believe in God who is, has the physiognomy of a man. That, of course, is not what is to, to be focused on here. As a matter of fact, it took many, many, many centuries in the writings of the New Testament, in the writings of the Old Testament, for the notion of Father to be to be contained in the in the description. God, the powerful one, God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, God who called Abraham, and uh, God who who led the people and offered them the law and sustained them, was not imaged as Father. Now, whether they sort of had that in a subterranean way in their in their notion of uh, what 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 God was like, who can tell? But the word father wasn't used until very much later in the Old Testament, and it was its choice is deliberate. So, first of all, uh, in Genesis, when God said, "Let us make man, humanity, in our image," in "Let us make humanity, man and woman," let us make them. The, the focus, of course, is that, that the human beings are made in God's image. And the focus, especially in that, is that the man and the woman in their complementarity together uh, contain the image of God. Because the very next line in that is that, uh, that they are to be fertile, to go forth and multiply. So the, the author of the book of Genesis knew where babies came from. He knew how this worked, man and woman made in the image and likeness of God, to carry on, to, to sustain and then create the succeeding generations. This is part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. So a woman is made in the image and likeness of God in the same way a man is. But in the ancient world, uh, actually, up until just in our generation with DNA testing, there was no way for any man to know whether the child born was his child. You could create all kinds of societal uh, guarantees that this, in fact, can only be your child. But the, the, there, there can be no absolute technical flawless proof that the child born is your child. And so a father is one who always, by choice, extends his love to that child. This child is part of my family because I choose this child. Now, that's the image that they're trying to get to with regard to God the Father. God is Father who chooses us, whose exercise of of will is for our sustaining, and that God the Father is the one who by his own initiative, 
begins this whole process of creation, the whole process of sustaining or calling a, a people and sustaining a people. So the, the focus of the author of or the authors of the Apostles' Creed was not to image God as a father, as a man up in the sky someplace. It is to image the one who chooses us of of his own initiative. Now, I know this causes all kinds of anxiety among those who who in our day and time have become aware of the depth of of prejudice and the depth of of sexism that exists in our society and are very very uncomfortable with this male exclusive notion of the exercise of power etc cetera, etc cetera. all of which is all of which is true enough in its critique but uh, it's important for us to to remember that the folks who wrote this weren't weren't deluded, benighted folks who just didn't know anything. These are folks whose image of fatherly love didn't have so much to do with with the arrangement of body parts on the human person as it had to do with that primordial experience of what it means to initiate, what it means to choose, and what it means to get started. That's why Father Almighty is 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 connected. That that God as the Almighty One, is the one who not only can choose, but has the power to choose and has chosen in our favor. He's created the world. It's clear from the book of Genesis. He created our world for us. In the first chapter of Genesis, he creates the, if you can imagine, the six days of creation, the the five days of creation preceding the final day when the man and woman are made might be likened to a kind of pyramid. And when, they, when the pyramid is established, it's like the foundation is laid, and then the apex of creation is created, the man, the woman, and the, the whole world is for them. It's all made so that they can prosper. Well, what I was going to ask you, you know, in ancient times, it seems like that the, uh, the Jewish view of God, all-powerful, wasn't the way in Egypt or Greece. They had limited gods, and it seems like an all-knowing God is a... A fairly uh, unique view in the world, especially at that time. Yeah, it was in the in the actual history of of the Jewish understanding, and in the, in the history of the revelation, the, the the God of the people of Israel was a God among other gods, and then the understanding or the the deepening revelation that he was a God all powerful over other gods. And then finally, he was the one God. All other gods were manifestations of delusion and error and uh, foolishness. And so that wonderful image in the in the uh, Psalms where the people who bow down to their idols become like them. The, the idols are deaf and mute. They're made out of stone and wood. And the people who, who adore them become deaf and mute as stone and wood. It's just wonderful. We become like the gods we adore. So if we adore and acknowledge God, the Father, the Almighty, the one who relates, uh, then we're, um, uh, we become like him, the one who chooses to love. That's what, that's what we become like. It's also important that the anthropomorphic word Father is used. It, it would, could have easily been said, I believe in God, the Almighty. But the Almighty, as far as total power, isn't someone you can relate to very well. God, the Father... The, the word father, the, the, the experience of father, the one whom we do relate to, our founder, the one who sustains us in life, that's a, that's a, 
that's an immediate and human experience that we call upon. And even if you haven't had a father, even if your experience of the father is less than it should have been, we all know what a father's love ought to be like. And it's not simply a kind of, of objective um, uh, scientific word. It's immediate, it's personal, and it's experiential. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. Thank you, Father, and we'll be back with our next segment in just one moment. Welcome back to Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf, and we're going to take a little uh, change of pace, and it's faith in verse. So, Father, do you have a poem for us? We do. You know, the, uh, the mystery of grace is something that is the drama of what it means to believe. How is it that God comes to us, and why is it that it's so hard for us to receive and to believe, and that's the mystery that uh, surrounds all of us. We can look at our own family stories. We can look at our own personal journeys and wonder how it is that uh, grace seemed to be all around us now that we look back. But when it happened, it, uh, it was sometimes often hidden. And so I have a little poem, and it's this. A little gift lay on her desk, a splotch of pink and silver in a black and white forest floor of papers and reports. Oh, thank you. I love surprises, she said. She didn't, really. They were too much trouble. Like foundlings, they couldn't be ignored once they were there. But when they find you, you're hooked. So she smiled and lied and did the best she could, smiling her best smile to make her friends happy. Thanks, she said. Grace is always around us a gift given in our busy moments with threads and ties stringing out. And we often clench our teeth at such generosity because gifts can be so much trouble. So we mouth our thank yous and go about our life best we can. Content to leave our packages strewn about, wrapped and decorated, unopened, unused. Keys to heaven, formulas for eternity, all covered by the falling leaves of papers and reports. They remain hidden forever for us. Thank you, Father, and we'll be back in a moment with one final thought. Welcome back to Living Catholic. For those of you who don't know, Father Wolf is also the chairman of the board of St. Gregory's University in Shawnee. Father, tell us about uh, the repair work after the earthquake of last year. Well, it's very exciting, Bill. We are raising money to re- begin repairs on the turrets of the of the main building there on campus at St. Gregory's. We've been successful in raising uh, a good part of the money that we need. We're now in the middle of our uh, our campaign for naming a window. There are th- more than 300 windows in that building, and uh, we're, we're selling a window, the naming opportunity for a window. Anybody interested in that can get a hold of the folks there at St. Gregory's. 
But we hope to be able to break ground on the remodeling and repair of our building on the anniversary of the earthquake this coming year. That'll be quite exciting for all of us. It's also the day that we have our homecoming, and it will be a chance for everybody who's uh, associated with St. Gregory's over the years to come back and celebrate. The thing to remember is uh, what the students said the day after the earthquake. Everybody knows that uh, when you go to St. Gregory's, the ground rocks. So it's uh, it's a pretty exciting time. It's a great time now uh, at the University of St. Gregory and the opportunity available there for um, both for traditional students, residential four-year students, as well as um, the College of Working Adults is just tremendous. It's a, it's a new day at St. Gregory's, and I'm really excited about the uh, all the things going on there. Well, thanks, Father. And what are we looking at next week? We're going to do some more faith in politics. We'll visit the time with the apostles, our little pause with the apostles and the Apostles' Creed, and a little chance for some faith in verse. And we'll see you then. Day by day by day by day by day. Living Catholic is a production of Blue Cardinal Concepts, copyright 2012.